and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So my day job is that I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we are facilitators and coaches, and we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been truly overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our previous episodes, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach for the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Nick Thompson is one of the more interesting, curious, intentional, thoughtful, and intelligent people that I've had the pleasure of being around. We've spent some time together at a retreat, and this conversation gives you a nice glimpse into how he thinks about not just journalism, not just leadership, but our society as a whole. And he is the CEO of The Atlantic. Before that, he was the editor-in-chief at Wired. He also served as the editor at TheNewYorker.com. So he has been in an editing role for a long, long time. And now he's on the business side of journalism as the CEO of The Atlantic. He also is a writer and a journalist. He also is a runner. He has records for and uh, for men 45 and over running 50K marathons. He also is about to embark on a ultra marathon himself where he's going to run over 
50 miles. So he's an athlete. He is a competitor. He is currently, this is a cool stat. He's currently the third ranked masters marathoner in the world among men 45 and over. So he's still getting after it, but then he's got this other side of him where he plays acoustic guitar. He's released three different albums of acoustic guitar music. So Nick is not a one size fits all type person. He has range and he is somebody who loves to think about journalism, social media, technology, and how we can continue to improve our society on all of those fronts. And he is certainly a leader. He's running an organization and he knows that the words that he shares have influence and have impact and that they ultimately matter. And at his core, I think Nick is someone who really wants to try to leave this place a little bit better. So we'll talk about journalism and the role it's played in our society and some of the good and the bad and the ugly and where he hopes it can continue to grow as he continues to innovate with journalism and even more so with social media. So he is a speaker. He is a facilitator. As I said, Nick wears a lot of hats and I'm really honored that he would share his wisdom with us today. So here is Nick Thompson. Nick, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. We owe a shout out and a thank you to David Epstein for making our lives cross and intersect uh, together. And then we had Derek Thompson on the podcast. So I know we're going to talk about, or I'm planning to talk about his recent article about Moneyball. And uh, I thought it was a fascinating article and made me think a little bit differently. Um, But where I thought we'd start with you is when we got together, you shared a decision-making process that stood out to me. Can you share a little bit about how you think about what direction you want to go in, especially in your career and, and how you use this sort of litmus test to help you decide what to do. Sure. Yeah. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for inviting me on. Thanks for, um, thanks for having me here. So we were having that little conversation and I told a story about one of the hardest decisions I had to make and how I made it. And it was in the late 2016, early 2017. And I was the editor of NewYorker.com, which is a job I loved, a place I loved, people I loved. And through kind of random happenstance, I was simultaneously offered two amazing jobs. And I had no desire to leave the New Yorker. I adored the New Yorker. But two just incredible jobs. One was a big role at a tech company um, running product on a really important project. And the other was to be editor-in-chief of Wired. And so one was in journalism, one was outside of journalism. And I had to make a decision. I had to make it very quickly for complicated reasons. You know, both were sort of intense hiring processes with very specific timeframes. And they both, it just really happened like literally on the same day. And I had a weekend to think it through and I couldn't talk to anybody about it because it was private. Both things were private. Uh, I could only really only talk to my wife. And so we made up all of these kind of spreadsheets and talk through all of these factors, right? Like financial, like, you know, what would end up paying the most in the long run, right? Geographic, where would I end up being? Personal satisfaction, right? Opportunities for growth, trajectories towards other plans, right? Complexity, confidence that I could succeed. And you went through all of these factors. And my wife, I remember her joking, right? That she had, it was a little bit after the Trump Clinton election, where the New York Times had had that famous jittery meter that would kind of go back and forth, back and forth. And she started to do that to me, like holding up her hands like a little meter, like, I think you're going this way. I think you're going that way. And eventually I realized it was too hard. It was too hard to weigh all these factors. It was a really tough decision. And so then I made a 
choice. I said, okay, if I could say, what is one factor, right? Instead of trying to look at a hundred factors and weigh them each a little bit, let's just choose the most important factor. And then let's decide based on that. And so then of course there's the process of what is the most important factor? Well, the most important factor that I came up with talking with my wife is what would make me a better father to my children? Meaning what would bring more interesting stuff into their lives? What would have more of an effect on the world that they live in? What would help me be maximally close to them and engage to them? And that's a complicated choice with variables inside of it, but essentially we boiled the decision down to that. And then we decided based on that one choice. And so that was how I decided to become editor-in-chief of Wired by figuring that it would introduce me to all kinds of ideas that I could bring home to my kids, that it would create travel opportunities where I could take my children, that it would introduce me to a world where I could understand a lot of what they would be facing in their future. And all those things turned out to be true. And you know, I hope my children are glad I made that choice. You wear a lot of hats. You have multiple identities. You've got a background in music. You run. You're a CEO, but you also have an editor, writer. You post on LinkedIn, so you still produce content. And I'm curious, though, when someone calls you dad or whatever word they choose to use to just to call you, how does that feel? How does that land with you when when someone's saying, "Hey, dad, uh, you know, I want you to help me with something." Well, you know, the, my kids are. You know, by far, you just care about them in such an intense and profound way. And you want to be there for every complex choice they have to make. And you want to help them make the right choices, but you also know your power is fairly limited. You know, I very much believe that I can't, I can't tell them to want something. I can't make them want something. I can't force them to want something, you know, despite all of my years of trying. Um and so I just try to be there for them as best I can. And if they need help on something, I try to help them. If they need my support on something, I try to support them. If they want to go, I don't know, last night, hey, dad, can you go play football with me in the yard? It's pitch black, right? Um, but okay, let's go set up lights and let's go do it. So um, I just try to try to do my best within the all the limitations of knowing how darn hard it is to be a good parent. <laughs> And how's that similar or different to being a CEO? Um, let's see. So it's much more, it is different, right? At a CEO, it's in some ways the opposite, right? So the, my job as a CEO is to try to drive the organization in the best direction based on our most important values and to forever be looking at the list of complex issues that are going on, the list of complex ideas on my to do sheet and to be pushing on all the levers that I alone can push on, right? And if there's a lever that someone else can push on, kind of getting out of the way, letting them push on that lever. If there's, um, you know, I can't actually be particularly influential on something, stepping away from it. So it's constantly, and it, there's similarities and their differences, but I suppose the the difference is that I'm much more, you know, in some ways, I'm driving things more as CEO. And as a father, I'm much more supporting and trying to help them find their way. Like, I know what I want for the Atlantic. And I want us to get there. For my kids, I want them to find things that they're passionate about. I mean, there's certain things I care a lot about. I want them to be kind, right? I want them to be generous. Um, but 
mostly I want them to have passions and I want to be able to support their passions. So that's a little bit different from what I do at the organization. It's funny. I'm trying to think about like what would happen if I decide to just treat the Atlantic the way I treat parenting. And I would just kind of let, you know, let the organization do like whatever it wants, which in some ways is virtue to that. Yeah. I, you know, you said, I know what we want at the Atlantic. What is that? What did, what's the vision there? Well, the goal of the Atlantic, right? The Atlantic has this incredible history, right? So we were founded in 1857 by abolitionists trying to protect the idea of America and trying to protect American democracy. Um, and the goal is the same, right? And so that's the goal of the publication. The goal is to help America understand itself, help protect democracy here to some degree abroad, but to make this country work better. Now that's extremely complicated because there are a million ways you can try to do it. And it's not like we're a poll watching organization. We're a intellectual organization that tries to build and bring together a coalition of diverse writers with different opinions and debate these issues with humility and knowing that we don't have all the answers. So that's the goal of the publication. My, I'm the CEO, so I don't control the editorial. I don't assign stories. I don't you know, I don't say, hey, the midterms just happened. Let's write this story with this angle. I don't do any of that. I maybe try to you know, set up the organization so it's financially in a position where it can hire writers to do that, where it can you know, distribute stories in the best way. But my job is to make the business as successful as possible, as innovative as possible, as future-proofed as possible, so that we can, as long as I'm here and to the best that we can sustain that mission of the magazine that's existed for since 1857. Yeah. I read, I subscribed to the Atlantic and excellent. I Thank you. Newsletter. <laughs> that's why Nick's on and you know, I just make it happen. Uh, but there was a recent article where you all really shared the history of the Atlantic. And there are a couple of bullet points that I'm going to share with you. And then there's a question at the end of it, which is, um, you know, it, it started out with this idea that they would make politics, literature, and the arts its chief concerns, and the founders wanted to be fearless and outspoken. Yeah. And then in a manifesto, they promised to be the organ of no party or clique. How are they doing at that? I think we're doing which part of it, the last part or the whole thing? Yeah, maybe we start with organ of no party or click and maybe work backwards from fearless and outspoken and then politics, literature, and arts is chief concern. Yeah, I mean, we're nailing the politics, literature, and arts. It'd be hard to argue that we're not covering politics, literature, or the arts. I mean, the complicated question is the of, the, of no party or click. And I feel like, um, you know, I'm a little hesitant to talk about these. I feel like these are matters for the editorial side. So I'm going to be slightly circumspect in what I say, but I feel like the Atlantic as a whole has done, has tried very hard to not become a partisan publication, right? And you can look at the roster of writers we have and you'll see a lot of Republicans, certainly former Republicans, right? And you've got, you know, you've got David French, you've got David, you've got David Frum, you've got Connor Friedersdorf, you've got a bunch of smart, conservative thinkers who write for us. Now, we don't have a lot of Trump Republicans or, you know, I don't, I have no idea how the staff voted, right? But we do have, we are open to a much broader range of opinions than our peer publications. And, you know, sometimes we get pushed in together, like we're just the liberal media. But I think people who read The Atlantic closely rec 
recognize that there is a very wide range of opinions. You know, we sometimes say, you know, covering race in America, we have, you know, John McWhorter and Abram Kendi, right? Like you have a very broad swath of opinions. We Mitt Romney just wrote for us, right? Like Republicans are very much engaged in the Atlantic, our subscriber base. I don't know exactly the political breakdown, but I imagine it's it's not 50-50. Um, but we try very hard not to be of any party or clique. Yeah, it's it's interesting for me. Uh, just recently, I'm on Twitter. I like Twitter. I find it to be really useful and helpful. And recently, I really wrestled with who I'm following. And there were some people posting some stuff that I followed that I just like it was making me worse. Like it was making me in my day, like it, I don't say it's poison. I'm not going to go that far, but it was not, it was a little toxic for you. How do you sort of balance listening to viewpoints of people that don't necessarily see the world like you do, but not necessarily um, digesting toxic or, or cancerous materials? This is a real issue for me when I was more of a journalist, right? Right now I'm more of a businessman, so it's less my life. But when I was writing, when I was at Wired, um, we don't we didn't cover politics, but you can cover anything having to do with America, you know, from 2017 to 2020 when I was the editor. And of course you're going to be touching on politics. And I would do a couple of things. One, I would, you know, every time I was editing a story or writing a story, I would either like literally read it out loud to someone with a different viewpoint or try to like read it out loud in my head to your friends who are Republicans, right? Just to make sure that there weren't any assumptions or there weren't any, you know, unnecessary asides, or there weren't any ways that we were stepping into political fights that we didn't need to step in or that were entirely unnecessary. You know, I try to read a wide range of opinions and I mean, I think this is one of the most important things we're working on. And I, you know, I'm actively working on, and this is not something I can talk about a lot, but I'm happy to talk about a little. I'm trying to develop a new platform for conversations that will allow people that will be completely optimized from the way people are onboarded to the way the algorithms work, to the way the conversations are structured to increase empathy and to have the exact opposite effect of what you sometimes feel on social media. Um, you know, the code name is Narwhal. We're building it. We have a small community of people testing it right now. We're trying to work out the AI. We're trying to work out the metrics. But the hope is to build something that counters some of what so much of what has happened in social media. I feel like if I were to take Nick and go back 20 years, I would absolutely have thought the internet would bring people together and make the world more factually accurate. And it's one of the most dispiriting things of my adult life that the internet has done the opposite. So I'm trying to do whatever little I can to pull it in the opposite direction. Yeah, you've got in your Twitter bio, I still be, I'm still a believer the internet can be good. And that That's caught my funny. attention. You might be the only person who's ever noticed that, but thank you. Well, I I this is where I completely agree. I had Bram Weinstein on the podcast years ago, and Bram worked at ESPN. He works in local sports radio here in DC. And Bram and I were having coffee at a Starbucks one day, and we talked about this on a podcast. And um, it's in, it was in a grocery store. And over he's facing the staircase, but in the corner of my eye, I notice a woman and a man start to get into a tussle and go down the staircase. 
And I'm like, and I see his face. I look over and I'm watching this and I get out of my chair and I'm like, what is going on? And the woman who's dressed in plain clothing says, stop, police, stop. And they're sort of going down the stairs. They go down one platform, they go down another. And then another guy in plain clothes uh, dress, who I saw walk in with her, um, also goes down there to help her out. I jump out of my chair. I run down the stairs and say to them, do you need any help? It was clear to me that they were undercover police officers and they were trying to arrest this person. And he was resisting and fighting and um, first of all, when you see a woman get thrown down the stairs, for me at least, that triggers that something is abnormal going on. Um, and I get down there, I help like them secure the person, and then I look up and everyone's got their phones out. Every single person. They're not moving, they're not looking to help, they just have their phones out. And I like to me, so many people are trained now to take out their phones when something bad is happening. And to capture someone and capture someone doing something that's that's awful. And I can't figure out why we're not also trained to do that when great things are happening. Mm-hmm. Like there's so much kindness in the world. And around that same time, I lived in a house and there was a snowstorm and our neighbor who we didn't know just came and he had a snowblower and just like um, cleared our, our walkway and just cleared our fronts too. I was like, I don't even know that guy. His name ended up being Ed. I introduced myself, brought him a bottle of wine. And I was like, man, that guy should be on the news like that. Why are we not sharing kindness? And I actually explored a business idea of like, we should be sourcing kindness. And why isn't that, why isn't it that we are not looking for the kindness that exists in our world on a day-to-day basis, but we all seem to be taking out our phones when something bad is happening. And, And can you speak to maybe why that might be from an economic standpoint or a media standpoint or a psychological standpoint. I'm I'm just fascinated that to me, there's so much good in this world. And yet our news systems are, our media to a certain extent. And, and our psychology is constantly seemingly looking for the person, you know, getting thrown down a staircase. That is a really important question. So I feel like there's a, chicken and egg issue here where let's just talk about the social media elements of it. Why does this, why does a video of someone being unjustly thrown down the staircase do better on Twitter than a video of someone helping you know someone up the staircase? And I actually think that there are emotionally resonant. I think if you had done a video, you know, had a video, this guy, you know, came and cleared the snow from my front, you know, front stoop, you would probably lead to some reactions, but not as much as if you had a video of someone being thrown down the stairs. And the question is whether our brains are triggered toward outrage more than they are towards sort of love um, or whether it's the algorithms that have directed it that way um, or whether it's a combination, right? It's algorithms that, you know, the fundamental flaw of the social media ecosystem that we exist in today is that the early algorithms that drove these platforms, Facebook, Twitter, all of them, TikTok, were driven towards engagement, not towards other outcomes, right? And they were just, the assumption was social media is good, connection is good, um, engagement is good. So let's take all the variables. Initially, let's codify hand. Nick, Nick, when you say good, I think it's just important to, good for eyeballs, good for revenue, or good for society? Good for society was the assumption. I think Facebook, the the folks at Facebook who... Um, you know, worked there and set these systems up, genuinely believed that bringing more people together and 
you know, getting more engagement was a net positive for society. What do you think their blind spots were that they didn't see? Um, I mean, I think it took them a long time to realize that wasn't true, right? It took them a while to realize, oh, wait, things can go horribly wrong and we should adjust this so that things don't go horribly wrong. And that's step one. And step two is, oh, wait, lots of things are kind of constantly going on. Maybe we should rearrange this whole thing. You know, step three would have been, oh my God, you know, from the get go, this algorithm is creating massive problems for society. We should, you know, scrap it, completely re-engineer it. And that step still, you know, has yet to, has yet to happen. Why is that? Well, there is a lot of good that social media algorithms do. And two, you know, these people may, they all be, all the folks became, you know, centimillionaires, billionaires, right? They had a lot of, it's hard to get someone to, you know, see something when their paycheck depends on them not seeing it, as the saying goes. So I think that, um, I think that it took a long time for the folks who made the algorithms, adjusted the algorithms to realize all the harm, um, all the harm that was, was being done. So the algorithms were all sort of, you know, primed towards engagement. And then the question is, why was the kind of the negative content more engaging than the positive content? There were some interesting stories of people who tried to make sort of, I remember, remember Upworthy, right? Let's have like emotionally resident positive content. They actually did pretty well. I mean, I think there is business in there and I think there are opportunities there, but I think we absolutely ended up in a place where the throwing down the stairs content was prime stuff for all of those platforms. And I'm sure you're content at the Atlantic, uh, but Elon Musk, take over Twitter. Here we are. If he called you tomorrow and said, hey, Nick, um, you're now the CEO of Twitter. Uh, what are what are steps that that you think we should take uh, at Twitter? How do you how do you respond to that? Well, I mean, obviously, I'm not leaving the Atlantic, and he's obviously not calling me. But in some other hypothetical world, um, I would. Well, Twitter's a complicated case, right? Because they actually, you know, they need to be financially sustainable, right? So you have to figure out this business model. And I think his move towards subscriptions is not a bad move. I think the way he's doing it is a mess. But I think if Twitter would had been based on a subscription model from the beginning, you would have a very different Twitter. So that's problem number one. But then you also have to fundamentally re-engineer the norms of the platform so that the norms of the platform and the algorithm underlying it are pointing people in a more in a direction that is that incentivizes different behaviors, that incentivizes people to um, increase their empathy towards other, that incentivizes people to have conversations with them and doesn't incentivize them to dunk on, chit post, do all the things that you see on Twitter. So I would work as much as possible with the engineers, the AI team to identify what is the like signal of quality that we most want at Twitter. Because it's not engagement, right? If you optimize everything for engagement, you're going to get one, an algorithm that points people in one direction. If you optimize everything for revenue, you know, you're going to get something similar, but different. Um, if you optimize for, you know, information, you're going to get something entirely different. So you have a set of conversations and you try to understand where you want to optimize the algorithms. And then you start to change the system and talk about the norms and then develop a whole set of policies that then follow with that as your North star. So the goal of Twitter becomes, you know, maximize the amount of information that people are gathering or make people feel like satisfied with the time they spend. So maybe you 
start to do surveys of people at the end of the day, like, did you feel like Twitter was informative? And you sort of run that against what they actually saw. Do you feel like this added to, was this a positive contributor to your life as opposed to a negative contributor? Okay. And then you run AI based on what they saw and you optimize for those variables and you'd end up with a very different social media platform. And then meanwhile, you build a business model that would support it. So that would be what I do, but, um, you know, I think that's pretty different from, um, the way it's been run or the way it probably will be run. There's almost like a philosophy question here as far as what is best business practice? Because you said you could focus on revenue. So maybe a business person listening to this says, yeah, I run my business focused on revenue and how do we maximize revenue? But I almost hear for you that, and I could be putting words into your, your mouth, but uh, there's like a short-term play and a long-term play. And if we can add value to people with, our, let's just go back to the Atlantic. If we can add value to people with our content, um, it'll take care of the revenue. And my dad was a journalist by trade and his whole thing was quality content, like yeah. put out quality con content, have a subscription model. Uh, his happened to be business to business, but it was always about quality content. And then in the long run, you know, the financial elements would, would get taken care of. Um, and it wasn't that he was some altruistic human. It was good business practice uh, in that way. How do you think about business from in terms of maximizing revenue when it comes to content compared to, hey, over the long haul, we want fans that trust us, that believe in us, that are going to come back, that will, you know, pay their subscription and not quit and leave. Like, how do you think about that on the business side as you think about the Atlantic? Yeah, it's a great question. It's, you know, and it's, it's not just how I think about the Atlantic. It's really been my work for the last, since I started at the New Yorker, since I started running the digital. So my, I was an editor, just a straight editor at a place called Legal Affairs, a place called The Washington Monthly, and then at Wired, and then at the New Yorker. And then in, I think, 2012, I moved over and kind of began this new life where I was put in charge of running the website at The New Yorker and then put in charge of, um, you know, helping to lead the team that built the paywall and did all those things. And so- Hey, Nick, what, what, why, why make that pivot or transition or explore that instead of stay? Because to me, it sounds like there is a pathway of- you know, journalist, editor on the content side. And it sounds like there's this other opportunity to go into business. Like what was the draw there for, for going into that? You know, it's, it's funny. It happened all of a sudden with very little, I didn't really think it through. So, you know, there was a change and the position became open to run the New Yorker's website. And I was a senior editor editing print features. And I honestly thought that that would be what I would do for the next 30 years. But David Remnick, the wonderful editor of the New Yorker, favorite people in the world. He uh, came to me and said, Hey, I want you to run the website. Now, why he came to me, I don't know. You know, I had had a bunch of conversations with him about how the website could work and digital innovation. I think he wanted someone from inside the New Yorker to do it, who he trusted. He told me if it didn't work out, I could go back to my old job. And I did not have a sense then that that would put me on a completely different career trajectory, right? So if, if Remnick doesn't come to me that Friday afternoon and say, do this, I'm probably still there as a senior editor editing magazine features, right? Who knows what happens? Like the whole journey I've been on the last 10 years is entirely different. Um, but back to the original question. So my philosophy in the jobs I've had since, right, as the running the New Yorker's website and then editor-in-chief of Wired and now CEO at The Atlantic has been, you start with the assumption that you're only going to do the absolute best content, right? You're going to do the best content that you're capable of. And that's your starting point. And then you build the business model around that. You don't do it the other way around. You don't say, 
how are we going to maximize revenue? Okay, now let's get the content. So the quality of the content is the starting point, and then the business model comes after it. Um, and when you do it that way, you probably could have made a lot more money, you know, at all of these places had we done it the other way around, but not be as sustainable in the long run. And it's not as good for the for the world. And honestly, you know, nobody goes into journalism out of a desire for it's it's not a it's not a profession for people who are economically motivated. I mean, everybody likes money and but people come in here because they think it's important, because they think it's interesting, because they think it's intellectually exciting. Um, and I think that at those three publications, you know, we've done it, we did a, a good job or certainly tried as hard as I could to balance those two values of doing the best work and having a sustainable business model. Where does your desire to be value-based come from? Um, gosh. Um probably comes from, you know, it comes from family members, right? My, you know, I had two kind of interesting grandfathers, one of whom was a public service arms controller, absolutely devoted his entire life to the project of helping America win the Cold War. Right? The other was, you know, Baptist minister, pacifist, you know, absolutely committed to a set of values about how the world should be run. You know, my mother, you know, very strong um, social values. Growing up and, you know, in college, I was kind of an activist, which is, it's complicated where the lines of moral behavior and sort of political behavior cross, but I always wanted to, you know, make a mark in a positive way. And then I got into journalism kind of by accident. You know, again, like this sort of seems like my career is totally happenstance, but I didn't plan to be a journalist in college, kind of fell into it. Um, and then sort of the question of when I became committed to, this is a question I don't think I've ever answered or really thought through before. So we're doing it on the fly, Brian. I don't think that when I started as a journalist, I had a sense that I was in it because journalism was a really important civic project. I got into it because I thought it was super interesting and the people were really cool and the professional was great. And along the way, I had amazing bosses all the way. My boss at the Washington Monthly, Charlie Peters, my boss at Legal Affairs, Lynn Kaplan. Um, and I think, you know, maybe it was at the New Yorker, maybe the New Yorker where I, you, you imbibe the values of the place and the values from Remnick and you start to think about what the role of the New Yorker is in the world and what the role of journalism in the world. And that probably had a huge influence on the way I think about things. It's a good question, though. I'm going to think about yeah. that a little more tonight. Yeah, I think values drive our behavior. And so it's not just the values, but the order of the values that drive our behavior. So I always say, like, politically speaking, everyone, the example I give is, regardless of what you think of Donald Trump and Barack Obama, and I'm not going to get into politics with you, you know more about it than I do. It wouldn't be that fruitful of a conversation. But I always was interested in Obama's big thing when he was running for president was, you know, universal healthcare. And to me, that's a humanity value. It's, mm -hmm. you know, it's something like everyone should have. And Trump, people forget his big thing was build a wall. Like it was, we're going to build a wall and that's a security value. And, you know, one of the mistakes that I think we make as a society is to assume that the person that votes for security doesn't care about humanity. And the person that votes for humanity doesn't care about security. Yeah. And I do think that the primary value is often the driver of the behavior. And, mm -hmm. 
you know, I think our politics would be a lot better off if they acknowledge that, like, just because you voted for security or just because you voted for humanity doesn't mean you still don't value those other things. And if you actually talk with human beings that vote differently than you, a lot of times you will find that you have common values. They just might intersect at value five, six, seven, or eight. Um, but I do think for you, you've talked a lot about doing good and making the world better. Um, and so even in business, it seems like that is uh, woven into how you operate and, and how you go about your work. Um, it, it, it is, though you never actually know if you are, right? If you, I mean, so sometimes I think back. So I, when I was in college, it was my big issue. I remember trying to get, um, I was a student at Stanford and part of the student government and, you know, absolutely committed to trying to get Stanford to divest from companies that did business with the dictatorship in Burma, now Myanmar. And the idea was that, you know, this would be to support Aung San Suu Kyi and a democratic resistance in Burma. And, you know, you look back, right? And now was, were we motivated by the right cause? Absolutely, right? You know, the dictatorship in Burma, they're horrible, right? We've seen that from, you know, you've seen that from the recent genocide. But was the policy proposal that we were pushing good. Well, maybe not actually, right? The removal of US companies, which was the uh, directive, had no effect on the slork on the on the government there. And so even though we ended up, you know, indirectly getting what we wanted, it didn't actually do any good. Secondly, we like idealized Aung San Suu Kyi, who at the very least has now turned out to be an extremely flawed leader, you know, perhaps playing a role, certainly playing a role in the demonization of ethnic minorities in Burma. Um, and it would be hard to imagine a worse past 25 years for Burma. So motivated by the right values, but the policies we advocated for, and to some degree, you know, one, one thousandth of 1% were influential in getting, I don't know if they led to the right outcome. So it's just very complicated. You can really come to something with thinking about the right things and just propose a solution that doesn't make things better. Yeah, and we see that right now in the sports world where a lot of people say, well, the NBA and a lot of these NBA players are connected to China and uh, they'll bring that up. And it is, it's hard to navigate like what is good and what is bad. And I, I think that's why having really thoughtful, nuanced media is so important. I think it's one of the reasons I enjoy this podcast. It's it's a long form Medium. Everyone talks about Twitter and the short form of Twitter. Yes, fine, that is true. But there's also like long articles that have become very popular, uh, long books that are very yeah. popular today, and certainly long form podcasts um, have a place in our society. So I think the nuance is, to me at least, what provides people with the best possible option of, of deciding what is maybe good or bad. It's actually a nice transition. I mentioned Derek Thompson earlier, and to go a little lighter, um, you know, he just wrote this awesome article on Moneyball. And I, I love Derek's work. I think it's, yeah. he always just takes a really thoughtful, I'm going to say contrarian, but it's not, it doesn't come off as contrarian because contrarians, and I can be one of them, like can sometimes be argumentative. And I don't think he argues necessarily. He just makes points and poses questions, which to me is like, those are the people I want to surround myself with. And he sort of poses this question about has Moneyball kind of ruined baseball and is it ruining baseball with the sort of idea and, and uh, concept around trying to perfect everything 
um, in the game. And you recently also commented that maybe the major league soccer championship was more interesting than the world series. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious for you, as you think about analytics, not just in baseball, but also in journalism, um, how you think about the role of analytics, uh, in your world and, yeah. and the value of them. And, and, you know, are we overdoing it a little bit? I, that's wonderful. Um, all right. So on Derek, yeah, I don't, I think you're right. He's not a contrarian. He just takes every issue and kind of holds it up and spins it around until he finds something interesting or different to say. And it's not, it's not like he looks at the conventional wisdom, identifies the counterpoint and then makes the best arguments and builds backwards, right? Which is, there are journalists who do that, but that's not Derek. Um, yeah. So his argument about baseball is super interesting, right? And it's that, you know, after Moneyball came out, everybody really figured out exactly how to optimize the game, right? And, you know, you know more about this than I do, but it became clear that, you know, strikeouts are extremely valuable, home runs are extremely valuable. And so now baseball is optimized for strikeouts and home runs, and there are no bunts and there are no stolen bases, right? We learned all this in Moneyball. And as a result, the game has become more boring. And then the question he raises is, you know, is it because like everything is optimized and now teams play the same way, right? And I think he's right and he's wrong, right? So the problem in baseball, I agree with the conclusion that baseball is less interesting. I'm much less interested in following baseball. But that's partly because the things that have been optimized for are in fact boring, right? Like what if the analytics had shown that stolen bases were way more valuable? Then people would be running all over the place. It'd be like wonderful to watch a baseball game, right? It's not just that we used analytics. It's that the analytics led us to strikeouts and home runs. Right. Um, Keep your pitcher in instead of subbing them out every second and having to watch people warm up every 10 minutes. Yeah. Like the, so the, the NBA is a great example, right? So a bunch of, doesn't take that much math, but it turned out like shooting three pointers is better than shooting two pointers. So now we have three pointers, which are fun because they lead to kind of like more interesting rebounds, passing, like they open up the spacing. Um, so I feel like baseball, the problem with baseball, maybe it's the analytics and everybody is playing the same way. But also it's that the analytics led us to um, led us to kind of a less exciting game. And so if I were the commissioner of baseball, I would kind of think it isn't that as likely as my job at Twitter. You got would, way more excited when you said if I were the commissioner of baseball compared to if I was running Twitter, by the way. Just, just <laughs> I'm the commissioner note. of baseball. <laughs> right, so I what I do is I look at like what events are the most interesting, right? And like stolen bases are great. Okay, so why do why do stolen bases not work? Well, you know, the odds of all right, so I don't know, make it 85 feet from first base to second base, right? Like figure out what it is that makes it statistically viable for people to run. Um, and you maybe you get a more interesting game, or you know, home runs are boring, strikeouts are boring. Okay, fine. So I don't know, four strikes for a strikeout, move the fences back, right? I mean, I don't know the adherence to statistics, you could never do that sort of stuff, but somehow without you know, leading to a backlash of everybody who cares rightly about statistics and historic historical parallels, make the game more exciting. Um, you know, change the way it works so that the you know quant focused teams, the game, the game, the game is great. To analytics and journalism, um, I've always had the belief that some people in the organization should follow it all. Right, like I look at every. I look at every piece of data on every story, right? I can pull up partially right now and tell you exactly how many people are reading every story, what the referral sources are. I can look at like what tweets have driven which traffic. I can, you know, through a little more research, you know, dig into exactly how each story is performing on Google. I can go look at Facebook analytics. I can do all that. But I don't think the, you know, and I think, I think writers should be allowed to do that if they want to. 
Um, but I don't think they should be forced to because it makes some writers nervous and you don't want writers to be optimizing for that stuff. And then the second element of my philosophy on this is that there's a period in the process of the creation of a story that is sacred and should not be touched by the people who care about the analytics, right? And that is the process from when the story is assigned to when the words in the story are finished, right? But as soon as the words in the story are finished, I feel like the folks who care about analytics and distribution should get involved, right? They should be involved in writing the headline, putting in the links, like figuring out exactly whether, you know, this is a story that we promote on Facebook at 417 or 403, right? Like there shouldn't be, you shouldn't compromise the integrity of the story, but once the story is done, you should let the quants do whatever they can. So that's always been my philosophy of how distribution should work and how the numbers work on, on in journalism. We had George Solomon, who was the longtime sports editor at the Washington Post on the podcast. He's he's seen a lot in his days running the sports section of the Washington Post. And one of the things that struck me is like the role of the editor. And he was working with Tony Kornheiser and Michael Wilbon and Thomas Boswell, these legendary writers. And it struck me that, okay, what it takes to be a great writer might be different than what it takes to be a great editor. And for you, I want to add like executive into that. And you've worn these different hats. What's different about being a writer versus being an editor versus being a CEO of a company? Yeah, they're all different and I've all done them. Um, I've done them all with some success, some failures. So first I'll handle the writer versus editor bit. Um, you know, when you're an editor, you need some of the same skills, right? Identifying a good story, but your your requirements, you're much more of a, you care much more about efficiency and about deadlines, about being a good editor requires to juggle a whole bunch of things at the same time and make sure that, you know, okay, I've got three stories, two of them are going in the issue. Like here's the game theory on how they're going to be done. Right. Okay. It's going to take this much time to copy edit the story. You know, there's a lot of being a psychiatrist involved or psychologist, like helping the writer, pulling the best out of the writer, figuring out which writers you're going to like rewrite the sentences, which of them you're just going to give them direction which of them you're going to give specific comments, which ones you won't do that because they'll react negatively. Like there's a lot of um, that kind of management in being a good editor and being a good writer, that all stuff is helpful, but you can also be a totally crazy person, right? And you can like stay up all night for four consecutive days and, you know, totally trip out and still be a great writer, right? You can't do that if you're going to be a great editor. Um, and so writers are, you know, much more individualist much more individualistic. They can be much more you know, passionate in a way. They can afford to be more disorganized. They can, it's just a different kind of person, right? And they also, they, you know, they can, they can be someone who like really brings it, um, you know, three days a year, right? Whereas the editor is always on. It's just different personality types and you want different kinds of people in both roles. Um, I spent a bunch of time being a writer, spent a bunch of time being an editor, you know, being a CEO, it's kind of similar, um, except again, your, their differences, right? The number of tasks you're handling at any given time is hundred X what you're handling as being an editor right here. Secondly, you know, the adrenaline flow of being CEO is very different from the adrenaline flow of being a writer or being an editor, right? When you're a writer or an editor, you have a series of specific tasks that you, you try to write the best story about the midterm elections, right? You try to assign the best story about the midterm elections when you're seat. And if you do, you feel good. And if you, you know, the New York Times says a better story, you feel bad. Um, being a CEO, you have a totally different like pattern of adrenaline and emotions as you go. Um, you know, and you're you're trying to solve like sort of set up bigger problems and figure out 
you know, well, if you hit this cue ball over here, it'll set up that cue ball here. And maybe we'll be able to get like what we need to get done. So they're very different rhythms. They're very different skills. They're very different personality types that succeed. I've loved all three, you know, which one am I best at? I'm not sure. Um, I hope it's being CEO, but we'll give me a couple more years. We'll see. What's allowed you to navigate all three. Um, I'm, you know, my personality is very much that of an editor. I'm very, I'm organized. I have a very tight to-do list and, um, you know, I was made an editor. Most of my, I you know, spent three quarters of my sort of time in journalism and editor and one quarter as a writer. Um, the thing that, so I think I was kind of like my personality since I was young has been that of being an editor, but the part that made the writing bit work to the extent it did was I've also always been hyper curious, which is something that is good for a writer. Like I like to go into, you know, I meet somebody new and I'm just curious about what they're interested in and what they do. And that's a, like a really important thing for a writer or, um, you know, for, for a journalist. And then and it's also like, I became a, I think I learned when I was at the New Yorker, I was an editor, but it, just being around such amazing writers, I ended up, you know, improving a lot there as a writer. So I had a, a wonderful education as well. How important is curiosity for a CEO? Um, well, instinctively, I want to say yes, but let me challenge that because you do have, okay. So a couple of things, you, you have to be curious in a different way, right? Like you have to be curious about how everything in your business works because you really have to master. Like there's so much stuff to master and so many, you know, I really have to understand what it is that makes the live business work. You know, what, and to the extent it's working, why is that? And to the extent it's not, why is that, right? And you really have to understand all of the elements of what, okay, so what leads somebody to subscribe and what about retention and like, how much does brand matter? And so- there's like kind of a curiosity about the organization and a curiosity about the people who work for the organization. But when I have a conversation with someone new, I sit next to someone on the subway, right? There's a lot I can learn from them for being a CEO, but it's a, maybe a, that, that kind of curiosity is maybe less important for being a CEO. I do think there's one thing, there's one thing that I've learned and that I thought about. Maybe it was six months into this job I started to worry that like, I'm learning a lot, but am I getting smarter? Right. I felt, you know, when you're a writer and an editor, you're, you tackle these new subjects. You say, I'm going to dive into this and I'm going to read these books and I'm going to meet these people and I'm going to learn all these things. And they're going to widen my horizons and make me smarter and become CEO and you're learning stuff, but are you actually like broadening your mind? I, I, I can't remember exactly when I had the realization. It's probably some conversation where artificial intelligence was. And I started to think, you know, my knowledge of artificial intelligence is declining. And, uh, and so then I was like, okay, I need to make sure this doesn't continue. I need to make sure I block out time during the day to read up on artificial intelligence and to make sure that I'm constantly, you know, always, you know, reading a book, listening to a book, making sure that I'm constantly like listening to podcasts that are kind of off the to-do list of the day um, so that I don't, the muscles, you, you don't need to worry about like focusing time on expanding your intellectual horizons when you're a writer or an editor, because it happens naturally through the job. And I think it's a more, it has to be a more deliberate practice when you're CEO. The other thing that comes to mind for me, I've worked with a lot of CEOs. 
I've come to the conclusion, and it could change, that curiosity is an amazing primer for pretty much anything. Mm -hmm. um, and at some point, we need to get to conviction. And for me, at least, when I'm convicted before I'm curious, I often am, am not my best self. Yeah. But when I'm curious and then I'm convicted, like that's when good things tend to happen. And I think when you're when you have that CEO title, if you're just curious the whole time and you're never sharing convictions, I don't think you're actually leading. And I think great leaders, like this whole thing, like leaders have to listen. Yes. Leaders have to ask questions. Yes. And leaders have to speak their mind when they believe in something and give the direction or the vision of, of where they're going. And I think sometimes that gets lost in the discussion around leadership is that once you are curious, once you've asked the right questions, once you've listened, then you better speak your mind and say, and if I'm wrong, I'll be the first to admit it. Um, but that's the direction and the course we're going in. And people want clarity. They want to know where they're marching to. They don't need to just constantly be asked. At some point, you got to make a decision, execute, learn from it grow from it, own it and move forward. And I think sometimes that gets lost in, in the, the idea of the role of yeah. leadership. I think that's wonderful. I think that's a great, a great framework and a great way to put it. And for you, as, as you think about um, your role and your world, the other part that we haven't talked about is running. And mm -hmm. we started this conversation and I was like, yeah, what do you want to talk about? You're like, I don't know. We'll probably talk about, you know, business. I think you mentioned writing, um, and running <laughs> and, uh, and look like for those that don't know, I, I know you used to run to work, run back from work. The, the 24 hours that I got to spend with you, uh, we went to go pick people up and you were on a run, uh, the morning of a retreat that we were doing together. Um, I know in 2020, you set the American record for men. We'll give your, your age a little bit here, 45 and over fifty <laughs> K race. Uh, you run ultras. Uh, I think you just did a marathon in London recently. Um, what does running do for you that maybe you don't get in an office or um, in a in a meeting or in a boardroom, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, I think of it as my meditation. So I, I still run to work. I still run home from work. And I think of it as a, you know, break um, during the day. And sometimes I'm listening to podcasts or I'm, you know, listening to stuff that is related to work, but I'm outside. It's New York City, so I'm breathing polluted air, but I'm like breathing air. Um, and I feel like it gives me mental space where I'm in my head, I'm in my body, where the line is between your head and your body, who knows. Um, it gives me a connection to kind of the outside world, to the natural world. Um, there's nothing I love more than going running up and down mountains. Um, you know, obviously I can't do it when I'm going into the office, but on weekends or on trips, I'm doing it all the time. Uh, it's giving me sort of, I feel like that's like a spiritual connection. So that's part of it. And then I also feel like this wasn't deliberate. I mean, I ran because I love running and I like competing and I like challenges, but uh, I do think that the discipline that it takes to be a good runner rubs off on the discipline it takes to do well at work and to kind of, you learn lessons while you're running, right? You learn the sort of it's pretty clear, right? There's one way to get better at running, which is <laughs> to run. <laughs> um, and you can like get better faster if you train in certain specific ways, but really you just have to kind of get out there every day. And it's a pretty profound, maybe obvious lesson for what to do in life. And I've always felt like one of my, you know, one of the skills I have at work is that 
you know, I show up every day and I do my best every day. And sometimes I do well, sometimes I don't do well, but I'm like always, I'm never sitting it out. I'm never like, I very rarely have to take a, you know, a mental break or something or like, you know, step away. Obviously I take vacations with my kids and stuff, but like I'm the amount of time that I'm present during the course of the year is pretty high. Um, and I think partly that's from running. It's just from learning that lesson of just like go in to do the best you can. And sometimes you have a bad race or a good race and you come back the next day and you keep going. So I've loved running as a, as a practice, as a hobby, as a form of meditation, uh, and as a way of kind of training different types of discipline. Do you still play guitar? Yeah, I do. And not as much. Um, but I play, I, you know, one of my kids, I play guitar to him every night to put him to sleep. Um, I haven't given a concert in a long time, but I do love it. Yeah. What's different about playing guitar compared to running? It's pretty similar. Actually, they're very, they're very similar in that, um, they're, you know, you're kind of, you're, you're, you become very present and focused on the activity. Like I can play guitar and have my mind wander, but if I'm going to, if I, if I want to play guitar, well, I'm really thinking about the music. I'm really thinking about the fretboard. I'm really thinking about all the sounds. I'm thinking about the melodies and thinking about all that stuff. And in, I think of them, they're probably the two things in my life that are the most meditative, you know, running, I say first, because I do more of it than I play guitar. There have been periods in my life where I play guitar a lot more than I run. Um, it's hard to be intensely committed to both. Um, but you know, in the periods after a marathon, you know, when I'm recovering or in between training cycles, I'm, I'm playing more guitar in part because it gives me the thing that I'm not getting cause I'm running less. And what do you get from an ultra? What do you like, what is that? What's different about that? Or even a marathon, um, then, you know, running to and from work. Well, you know, I don't know a ton about ultras. I've got, I've got one in two days. We'll see how that goes. Um, but my first, that's my first really big one. I've done a bunch of runs over the course of the summer where I've, you know, run up to 40 miles. Ultras uh -huh. are over 50, right? Is that what makes an ultra? Or, Ultras, or is technically, anything I think just over, over a marathon. Yeah, anything over a marathon. But really like, so running a 50K is 31 miles. It doesn't actually feel that different from a marathon. Running 50 miles on, you know, which I'm trying to do on Saturday um, in a race in, you know, Southern Illinois, that's pretty different. And I'm doing it because it's a challenge because it's something new, but I, mean, I don't know if I'm going to complete it. Like it's hard. Um, you know, it's gonna be 24 degrees out there. Like, can I run that far in that cold? Like there's like questions about what you eat, how you feel yourself. There's like a, it's, it's an unknown for me. Um, why am I doing that? It's a new challenge. It's something new to try. Um, I've tried getting faster in marathons. I'm ran my fastest marathon when I was 44. Um, now I started to slow a little bit, but got a little faster the last couple. So who knows exactly where I am? I'm almost certainly my next race will be a marathon. This is more just, there are a lot of people who feel like they've gotten something spiritually out of ultras that they don't get out of marathons. So I'm giving it a shot and I'll be able to answer that question a lot better in a week. You've used spiritual, I think twice in today's conversation. What does spirituality mean to you? Um, good question. I think of it as something outside of the regular life, something kind of, you know, we live this life day to day. We live in this physical body. We live for a very, you know, finite amount of time. We have a set of obligations and I think of spiritual activities as things that kind of step outside of that, that, you know, where you're not thinking about your, you're not thinking about your needs. You're not thinking about 
all the day-to-day of your life. You're thinking about things that are deeper and bigger. Um, so that's what I think of as as spiritual. To wind down, you know, my observation of you for 24 hours in a couple of different environments is that you are very present and you have a futuristic mind. And to me, in order to be a great writer, there has to be an ability to probably be present. In order to be a great editor, you probably have to find a way to really get into the weeds and be present with the material. And I think being a CEO, from my observation, and every organization is different, there also needs to be a vision and a creativity as far as what might look different three years from now, five years from now, et cetera. And so my observation of you is that you actually are able to blend both, which is perhaps why you've been able to navigate writer, editor, CEO, and then we get into fatherhood, running, guitar, all these other elements of your identity. Um, as you think about you know, strategy and future thinking, how do you balance that? How do you pull on that lever while also staying present? That's one of the hardest things to do, right? You want to constantly be, you know, I have this office, I have all these people out here, right? They can see them out right here, right, right there. And you want to be engaged in the issues of the moment. You want to be solving the problems of today. You want to be figuring out how to be most valuable for, you know, the 400 things that we're trying to solve today. And you also very much want to be figuring out how are people going to read the Atlantic and how are we going to support the Atlantic in five years? And weighing those two things and balancing your time as you work on that is one of the great challenges of being a CEO, making sure that you're balancing the needs of the moment with the needs of the future. And it's it's not unrelated to you know, some of the questions we've talked about before about business model and the kind of journalism you pursue and the hierarchy of values you put forward. Um, but I think if I'm going to do this job well, and I'm not sure I do this job well, but if I'm going to do this job well, I've got to be certainly spending a lot of time on both those questions. Like what can I do for right now? And what can I do for the Atlantic in five years? Beautiful. I think that's a good place for us to stop. Um, Nick, I know you're on Twitter. Uh, you have a website as well. And of course the Atlantic, uh, the Narwhal project, there is a Twitter handle for, um, yeah, there is a- my, my kids, uh, <laughs> what's the, uh, what's the show? Gosh, they're older now. They used to always watch, uh, Rider and all the Paw Patrol. Oh yeah, Paw Patrol. Paw Patrol. There is, Paw Patrol. There, yeah, there's an episode with the narwhal and like it's so. When oh I, really? I got to go back and watch that. Yeah, it's a it's a big big episode uh, in Paw Patrol. Um, but if people want to follow what you're up to, do you recommend they go to nickthompson.com? Follow you on Twitter. You're at nxthompson on Twitter. What, what's the best place to to follow along? Yeah, NX Thompson on Twitter and Instagram, Facebook. And you know, you can look up the Narwhal Project. We have a wait list for people who want to join the platform and discuss. I'd love it if you join. You can email me at nxthompson at gmail and I'll um we'll put you in. Like the people who listen to your podcast are probably exactly the people we want on the you know little prototype. So hope folks will join. You know, it's now we're, we're talking in November. We're building it. It's very early. You know, I hope in 2023 we'll get bigger launch, real app, maybe late 2023, we'll be ready to go public. We'll see. Um, you know, who knows? There's still a million things that have to happen, but you know, I'd love to engage with folks. All right. I said that was the last question, but you just sparked something for me. I'm just going to ask it. You got a lot going on, right? You're, 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 you're running a big publication. You're about to go run an ultra marathon father. 
Um, you know, you still take time. I'll give a plug to uh, the most interesting thing in tech on, on LinkedIn, uh, right? Like you do a lot. Um, when people ask you like, hey man, how do you have time to, to do all this stuff? Uh, what's your response to them? Um, you know, just, I don't, I don't think there's anything special. Just try to be efficient about, you know, try to be like, let's take the running thing, for example, right? Like I train pretty hard, right? But I don't, I don't train maximally. I try to fit it into my day as most efficiently as I can, right? Like one of the reasons I run to and from work is because it's takes about the same amount of time as taking the subway, right? And so you get a workout in, um, without like a cost to the amount of time you can spend in your office and the amount of time you can spend with your kids. So trying to be hyper-efficient, trying to be maximally present while I'm doing stuff, trying to be as efficient as I can about my to-do list. And then I, yeah, I wish I had more time in the, wish I had more time in the day. But Nick, how many people are at the Atlantic? How many employees? Do you know? 300 people here. All right. So we got 300 people. So it's a pretty good sized company. Yeah. And then with you, starting this, the Narwhal project, like how does that play where you've got an entrepreneurial pursuit that you're pursuing, but you're also running the organization? Like how do those work together? Well, so the Atlantic is owned by Emerson, Emerson, the Emerson collective and Narwhal is a product of Emerson. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's not an outside company, you know, it's right here. They're sitting here with the Atlantic folks. So it's separate, but it's also quite similar. And, you know, I just, I can walk around the floor and I can talk to somebody about what's happening in Narwhal. I walk the floor, talk to somebody about what's happening at the Atlantic. Cool. All right. Yeah. Awesome. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson. LinkedIn's the other place I like to play at Brian Levinson. And you can listen to all of these conversations, including Derek Thompson's at strongskills.co slash podcast. Now we got on Nick Thompson. They're not brothers. They're not related, um, but recommend following both of them. Nick, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and looking forward to hanging out with you next time you're in DC. That was so much fun. Thank you so much, Brian. That was a uh, fabulous conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. It was too hard. It's too hard to weigh all these factors. It was a really tough decision. And so then I made a choice. I said, okay, if I could say, what is one factor? Right? Instead of trying to look at 100 factors and weigh them each a little bit, let's just choose the most important factor. And then let's decide based on that. And so then, of course, there's the process of what is the most important factor? Well, the most important factor that I came up with talking with my wife is what would make me a better father to my children? 